Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, my co-host Natalie Torin and B. Shapiro of Ellis Brooklyn. B, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome. So let's start with the, the basics. What is Ellis Brooklyn and how did you come to start it? So Ellis Brooklyn is a clean luxury fragrance company. I started it about three years ago, I think three and change actually. Uh, but I think as any entrepreneur knows, it actually started five years ago when I really started looking at this space. So that was sort of like the initial seeds, you know, researching and all that and finding suppliers. And then it really came to life three years ago. And how did you know of anything you could have done in beauty? Why a fragrance company? So I am also the New York Times beauty columnist. So I have been the beauty columnist actually for about 11 years. I've seen pretty much all the categories and, you know, the micro categories are so many different segments now if you look at the space. And for me, fragrance, I think it's because I'm a writer. So I think because you're covering beauty all the time, after a while, when you cover that, you know, thousand lipsticks that you've tried, I don't think there's that much difference between the formulas, whereas we're uh, with fragrance, it's like a different language. The notes are are special. They can change. There's also a lot of new chemistry that comes out. It's like another language. So for me, it was endlessly fascinating. Um, that's not to say I don't love the other beauty categories. I still do. It's just for me, fragrance was special. And before diving into fragrance, can we actually zoom out? For there are a lot of venture capitalists out there who are you know seeing things like Glossier and saying, "Hey, should I be investing more and more in beauty? I'm not. I'm not an expert at it." Can you sort of just give a brief overview of perhaps a market map of the different categories within beauty? Sure. So, I mean, if you zoom way out, we're talking about like the major categories. So you have hair, you have makeup, you have skincare, you have fragrance. And then from there, you can look at, I guess you could call it subcategories, but it really depends on the retailer. So then you have body care, you have home scent, which is now part of fragrance now as well. And then you have wellness that crosses over, whether it's supplements or CBD oils, etc. So I would say those are the main bigger categories. Of course, within each one, you can then get more and more segmented. So there's obviously the rise of clean beauty, which I'm sure many people have heard of, which is more natural ingredients or a big no-no list. Um, There's also vegan, you know, vegan cosmetics are really big. So you can really get fragmented. But I would say those original big categories are how I would break it down. And in the last decade plus, have have there been, or can you describe any uh, startup unicorns that have emerged from those spaces? Ooh, you know, I think unicorns is a really tough term. And the reason I say that is because I think because I'm covering brands from such a different scope than I I would say like an investor would. So at the New York Times, I think when the luxuries I have is really following a brand for a very long time and across the brand arc, so to speak, I think a lot of times people will point to Glossier, they'll point to Drunk Elephant, they'll point to Kylie Jenner's line as, wow, these unicorns, oh my goodness, you know, Kylie's line 
line is two years old and does $400 million in sales. That's incredible. From my point of view, though, I think that if you really zoom out, Kylie has actually been working on her line forever. Because if you really think about why she's selling so much, it's because of her, right? It's because she has the content, she has the following, and she's really been on TV since she was a tiny, tiny kid. So in many ways, she's been building that following all her life. And then the brand came to life. You know, you only see the brand for two years, but really the background, the sort of legwork of getting the following is years and years in advance. I actually remember, it's actually an interesting story. I interviewed Kylie before she launched the line. And I actually have a New York Times beauty regimen story with her. And she was nervous. She wasn't sure that it was going to do well. She was sort of lesser known amongst the Kardashian Jenners. And, you know, she, we timed the story to release right before the launch happened. So I, I saw the product firsthand. I saw where she was going with it. But at the same time, she put so much work into it. Um, you could say the same about Glossier. Glossier, Emily's Into the Gloss existed about three years, I believe, before Glossier launched. So that's three years of building that community, three years of building content before any Anything even came out. So I don't know. I mean, yes, they're unicorns, but it's really tough to say. And do, do you think that any of those models are, are replicable across different categories? Like take celebrity plus, you know, a different category or take, you know, amazing content strategy plus different category or were there sort of unique, like flukes almost? I don't think they're flukes. I think they have definitely changed the industry. I think they've shown how powerful content can be. And I don't think that's just in beauty. If you look at wellness, it's the same story, right? You look at food, it's the same story. People just want to know more. People want to connect more. And I think it's because it's replacing that human experience. Only the human experience is happening first online, right? Before you would go into a store to discover your new products. Now when a customer is in the store, maybe she'll discover a couple new products, but chances are she already did a lot of her discovering online. So it's just changing where the communication's happening. And I think all three of those brands I just mentioned do a really good job of that. Whether it's creating the dream or with Drunk Elephant's case, Tiffany, the founder there, she really speaks very clearly. She's almost like on a mission if you look at her Instagram, uh, the way she explains her launches and how crazy she is and passionate she is about responding to the people on there. So in that sense, I think it's replicable. I don't think you can obviously rec- you know, replicate people. I think all three of those women, women are really special. So I think if anything, we can just learn principles from them. Do you incorporate that principle as part of Ellis in terms of the direct communication you've had with your readers for 11 years? You know, I do, but I also probably approached it a little bit different. So I think fragrance is different. So instead of skincare or makeup or um, hair care, even, for example, fragrance has always been more tied to fashion than any of the other categories. If you talk to any retailer, I think they'll also say the same thing. It's the one that's most hard to pinpoint in the sense it's like selling truly a dream, right? It's this nebulous, really difficult to describe category, but at the same time, really powerful. You know, our strongest, most primal sense uh, is still of our all of our human senses is still our sense of smell. When you breathe something in, it actually goes right to your frontal cortex. It's like the most primal instinct. So 
if you think about that as from a branding perspective, if you can brand fragrance, it's absolutely the most powerful. So with that in mind, I actually approached Ellis Brooklyn very carefully. I think that in order to have a really strong brand, it requires a little bit of time that's a little bit different than, let's say, a makeup brand or skincare brand that can just like run to the races. I think that it needed a little bit more communication, a little bit more time to incubate, to figure out what it was, and then to really sell that dream. On the flip side, what I also tell people is, if you can brand a fragrance line, it's much easier to brand anything else. And that's why you see with Tom Ford, for example, when he launched his beauty collection, he started with fragrance. First of all, he's known mostly for uh, fashion at that point, and fragrance and fashion are closely aligned. But also, if he can brand fragrance, he can do it all. So now if you look at his collection, he can go from there to lipstick to, you know, now he has skincare. You know, it can go all the way down the line. Whereas I've seen many brands try to go the other direction, right? And then it's sort of a hit or miss. It can work. It cannot work. So you can see... Orabe launched a, a fragrance. Urban Decay also tried to launch a fragrance. I'm not sure how successful those were compared to like Tom Ford. So, so, so I think that uh, fragrance branding is a little different in the sense that you have to start from much more of a luxury positioning, and luxury kind of can't happen overnight. So interesting that you position the idea of the power of a brand in this space being paramount, starting with the fragrance, and then you can diffuse off of the luxury established by the fragrance branding. So like an example might be Byredo in this space, right? Yes, Byredo is a great example. Yes, so this is like classic old rules of branding, according to like the Parisians, you know, if you look at Dior, for example, or Chanel, that's really what they did, right? And in many ways, it makes sense. Like if you have all that content from selling clothes and then selling fragrance, which is really selling that big dream, and then it's much easier to sell that lipstick. Because like I said earlier, the differences between the lipsticks, not that much difference, right? So if you're able to already have that dream in place, it's like an easy extra skew for you to make money. You continue to, to zoom out before, before going deep. The different big categories you mentioned, do, are the big winners in those categories, big winners across all of the categories? Or is Glossier slash Kylie Jenner's company, are those like just vertical cosmetics companies and then there's equivalents in each category? Who are the big winners? In, like who are the biggest players in, in beauty, I guess is what I'm asking. Oh, the biggest players are beauty are not necessarily the three that I mentioned. The biggest players in beauty often are still the big guys, the Estee Lauders, the L'Oreal's of the world, the Chanel's and Dior's. If we're talking about straight dollars and cents, or are we talking about influence? Both. So I would say sometimes in beauty, they are not equivalent. And I say that because we have so many niche brands now, right? So you could say the same thing like in food, right? I'm sure... I don't know. It's a mainstream cereal brand is selling more, but maybe this organic other cereal line is more influential. What does influence mean? Influence means that other people are looking at what you do. I'm sorry. I'm not saying this as like an influencer in the typical sense, like I'm on social media, but that other people are saying, oh, so-and-so is doing this. I'm going to start doing this. Or it's like a trend driver or they change the way that other brands do business. That's the way I think about it, at least. I, it's the, this is not like a technical term. Oh, sure. 
and and, and you, let's just call them the big four for now. You, you mentioned a few big companies. They, they, I assume they've been around for for a long time. Or do they all do more or less the same thing? Or like, how do they differentiate and, and compete? And are they across all categories? And and then my next question is, you know, will in five ten years from now, will there be a whole new class, or are they still going to be, you know, the, the big guys? Like, what will uh, upset them? You know, I okay, so I'm going to approach this with my New York Times hat on and put my LS Brooklyn hat to the side for one second. I think it's really interesting if you look at all the interviews between the Glossiers, the Huda Beauties, the you know, the, the younger generation of big beauty brands coming up. There, many of them are saying that they don't want to sell and they want to build their own independent giant beauty company. I think because I've been covering beauty for some time now, I think that sometimes people underestimate what the L'Oreal's, the Estee Lauder, the LVMH's of the world do once you go global. I think it's all well and good when you're playing in markets that you're familiar with. But I think once you go global, let's let's say you're going to the Middle East or Russia or, I don't know, Indonesia. Those big companies have massive advantages over the smaller brands as far as marketing, as far as getting to the customer, as far as knowing who that customer is. And that's just a fact of them being gigantic and having many brands and being in these global places a lot longer and just having more capability from a distribution structure. Um, that's not to say that these young brands can't one day be the Estee Lauders and L'Oreal's of the world. I absolutely think that can happen. I just think they're a long ways off. And also on top of that, you know, LVMH, Estee Lauder, L'Oreal, Cody, all of these all these bigger companies, they own many brands. So if we're talking about Glossier or Huda, which I mentioned, or Kylie or any of these, these are single brands. And I know that Huda Beauty recently launched a fragrance line, a separate extension. I'm not sure how well it's doing. It's a totally separate extension that she branded under a completely different name. I think that's very hard once you take Huda's name off of it. So it remains to be seen. How do the big companies differentiate amongst themselves? Are, are, is it sort of like car companies where it's kind of the same, but just different branding? Or, or how do they differentiate? Well, if you ask the people at the big companies, they will tell you 100% that they are completely different. <laughs> um, you know, having never worked at those companies, but having met executives, I definitely think the culture is very different. If you compare like a Shiseido versus a L'Oreal versus a Estee Lauder, I mean, they're so different. That being said, they are big time holding companies with, you know, a top corporate structure and many, many brands underneath them. So, you know, there must be similarities, right? Right. And is what makes them most defensible is less brand and more distribution and, and knowing their customer? I don't know if they know their customer better. I actually would probably think that the smaller, more nimble guys probably know their customer better. I think their distribution prowess is incredible. Um, when you go to market in somewhere like, I don't know, even Germany, for example, you have to find out where you're going to store your products. Are you EU registered? Compliance, legal, trademark, you know, the list goes on and on. 
Whereas, you know, if you're in one of those big guys, they have so many departments, it's almost like a plug plug and play. (laughs) That's why you see a lot of beauty companies selling to the big guys, even though it's a founder led brand, right? Like, for example, Fresh was founded by two, uh, a couple and they sold to LVMH. I mean, the story you hear behind the scenes over and over is like, oh, I was just sick of dealing with distribution. (laughs) So I think that's, that's their, um, a, a huge strong point. I mean, they have like, they have training teams that can like go like SWAT teams at any moment to, to service all of Sephora's. Right. And is this because it's still largely retail? But will that change as you know, more of it goes D to C? I'm curious what sort of structural changes in the market will uh, enable more, more startups. Basically, if, if we were starting a fund in the beauty space um, solely to focus on startups in, in the next five to 10 years, what would our thesis be as to why uh, there will be more startup opportunities than there have been historically? I think that beauty is much further along the evolution cycle than, for example, fashion. Uh, we, I think beauty in general has completely embraced social media and has come around even to the other side where most beauty brands that I know that are successful and I see that are scalable are omnichannel for sure. You can't just sell due to see. That would be like cutting off an arm. Right. And how do you expect that to evolve over time? I think we're already there. You know what? You know what one uh, market that's truly fascinating is China. So I think China is a good example where we're just going to get even more blended or seamless. So China, the structure of the the media and the retail arms are actually very very seamless because the companies themselves own many of the properties. So here, you know, Google is separate from Amazon is separate from Facebook. Well, technically, right? So there, it's integrated. So there, for example, Alibaba, they own Tmall. They own Taobao, which is a C2C platform that many influencers use to sell product. They also have their own social media chat platform. It might not be the most popular one, but they still have that too. Similar with JD or Tencent. They all offer this vertical integration, and it's very, very seamless. And the mobile acquisition is so crazy high there. You know how they pay, how they interact with the with the product, and then you see, for example, with Alibaba. They've already come full. I mean, the beauty world has already come full circle in the sense that Alibaba recently, I'm sure people have read in the news, has acquired a bunch of real estate for stores because they realize it's not enough. It's not enough to just be online. So it's already happened. And I think China is a good example for people to look at as far as creatively, what can you do? Do you see this wave of startups and beauty becoming their own sort of conglomerate in the next 10 years and being able to vertically integrate across resources and then also to to jump off of their their following and their you know micro targeting? Yeah. So, you know, you do see that, like I mentioned with uh, Huda Beauty, she launched that separate fragrance line. Again, I think because she took her name off. I'm not really sure how well it's doing. I haven't heard that much about it, to be honest, like compared to her when her launch debuted in the US. So I think that especially when we talk about some of these more influencer driven companies that have uh, grand dreams of expanding, I think they're very much like a celebrity line in the sense that if you take the name off, people are like, who is this? (laughs) Whereas, you know, you never know. You you, you know, you never know somebody could really do a multi-branded strategy really well. So I don't want to say that they can't do it. I just think that there's still a long ways to go. Jumping off of that and then also, you know, utilizing your example of China, we have 
Glossier developing a social network of its of its own for its own community, but obviously it has the the capacity to extend beyond that. Do you see that kind of social interaction as being key to any beauty company moving forward? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it depends on the scale, though. So I think what Glossier doing, is doing regarding its commerce is terrific, but um, I don't think they're the first. So, for example, Sephora already has their beauty insider community that's a very, 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 very active. I think I want to say I read some sort of stat saying it had like 23 million users or something on Sephora's Beauty Insider. It's like an insane number of people. And they recently relaunched it to where not only can you comment, but brands can also now have a handle and can jump in on conversations if they want to. So so it already exists. I think the fact that Glossier is doing it as a single brand is really interesting, though. So, you know, Sephora has so many brands going on. I think the fact that Glossier can do it for one brand you know, shows that shows how powerful they are as far as like melding media and commerce and and social. Um, but it's already happened. We've been talking about the conglomerate, the LVMH, the the Estee Lauders, and then also startups. But I know you have a working relationship or have had a working relationship with Sephora in the past. Do you want to talk about Sephora and Ulta in this landscape as we just just zoom out of the of the beauty industry more broadly? Sure. Yeah. So we are carried at Sephora. They're our main retail partner. They have been great for us, but I also think that they, I think that each brand, when they enter either a Sephora or Ulta, frankly, uh, needs to understand what they're getting themselves into and then plan for that. I think I hear so many stories where, and maybe because I have been in this space a long time reviewing other brands, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard this story. You know, Sephora said I could launch in all their doors. And I'll ask the brand founder, what do you mean all their doors? Like, you know, their luxury doors, their, no, 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 all their doors, including the JCPenney doors. That's something like 1400 doors, like an insane amount of doors. So you hear this, some D2C company will go from zero doors to 1400 doors that's just not a good idea, right? And and then that company might fail out because they don't know what they're getting into. So I think that a lot of times these giant companies like Ulta and Sephora, you have a lot of runway, but that also means what is the what is the saying? Your rope is so long, you can also hang yourself with it. So that's a totally bad paraphrase, but <laughs> but I hope it gets the the idea across. But yeah, so the ability to scale is huge. The ability to reach is huge, but that also means that you have to be an adult because no one is babysitting you. Can you just talk a little bit how when you partner with a company like Sephora? how it works in terms of like when startups want to partner with these types of companies, what are the trade-offs? What are the pros and cons, et cetera? And how should they think about it from a margins perspective? Sure. So from a margins perspective, I think you have to start your company with the margin that you're going to go into a retailer environment eventually. I've seen so many beauty and frankly, fashion brands start out with a margin where they can only go D to C and then they're stuck right? Because you spend all this money with paid social and customer acquisition, and suddenly you can't amplify that even more by going into a retailer because your margin structure is so tough. That being said, if you become as big as like a Kylie Jenner, maybe you can batter Ulta on their margins, right? Or negotiate more. Um, I think that kind of case, though, is really rare. When you go into a store, there's a lot of costs. There is fixtures, there is education, there's your, you know, much reduced margin. 
But what you get in return if you go to the right retailer is incredible marketing. So that's marketing that you, that if you think about how much you're spending on D2C customer acquisition, which is, I also think is an incredible amount, that that really sort of fuels that pipeline. So when you have a, the right omnichannel situation, they're, they're fueling each other, right? So if you go into, I don't know, 100 Sephora's like we did this past August, all your numbers will lift. Because people are more, there's more brand awareness, people are able to see it, experience it, smell it. Beauty at the end of the day is a very high touch. So people love trying it. It's part of the brand expression, the brand experience. So that's what you get. So you kind of, the way I approach a retailer relationship is that it's it's partly marketing, right? Yes, you want to be in the black in a retailer relationship, but, but, but a lot of it's marketing. It's helping you market when you're a young brand. You know, it's interesting. It sort of reminds me of, of record labels in the music industry. And if you look at the music industry, there's sort of, you know, a few major players who've been around for a long time and are really hard to upset. And, and the biggest advantage or, or they give artists and the reason why they get what some people say are really unfair deals is is marketing and, and distribution. But I would say, and some others also agree that the reason why they, they are defensible is because in music, back catalogs are really important and they own the, they own the back, the back catalog. If it was just about distribution and marketing, well, you know, artists can now do it do the do it on them uh, themselves because most of it is, is digital. I'm curious for a couple of things. One is, are those retailers are these totally independent companies, or are they part of the big four? Or, you know, big companies in some way. Uh, two, do you, do you see them as, as sort of like record labels in some sense? And then I'm also curious if there's sort of an equivalent to like a back catalog that makes these big companies defensible, or is it just hey, marketing distribution is is never going to be fully digital, and so. You know, if you have a ground game and, and, and an unfair advantage there, you're you're gonna be, you know, useful. Well, I don't think I, I I think the music industry is a very interesting model. I think the music industry is a little bit different because a lot of times the negotiation is a very unfairly weighted, especially in the beginning. Now I think it's leveled out a lot because of all the digital platforms and artists can use, but I think historically it was very, very unevenly weighted towards the labels. I don't think it's that way in beauty. And because A, they don't own your back catalog. You own your product, you own your brand. And frankly, you can say no, or you can push back, or you can say, well, you know what, maybe this is too much for me. I think every big company can respect that, right? Um, they can say, okay, you're, you're bringing this much income. I can only spend X amount on sampling with you this year. Or, you know, you can push back. So this is not just if, if, all one way, especially if you have built a strong enough brand, right? And that goes back to how much do they want you? If you build a brand that's what everybody wants, of course, you're going to get better terms. That, I guess, is similar to music. If you're a hot artist, everybody wants to work with you. You can be Taylor Swift and dictate the terms. Um, similar, Similarly, you know, Ulta or Sephora or any of the big retailers, they really benefit when one of the hot brands is with them, right? There's a lot of brand alignment. It brings people in the doors. It keeps Sephora or Ulta cool or whatever it is. For Ulta, I believe they're independent. I'm pretty sure they are. Sephora is owned by LVMH. Yeah, that's that's obviously a very strategic asset for them. And do they, do they take equity in the same way like a venture capitalist takes equity or, or a label takes equity or is it just pure rev share? And I guess I'm curious if there is an industry that is more analogous to it, whether it's venture capital or whether it's Hollywood or, or something more analogous to the, that type of partnership, in your opinion, or, or just beauty in general. 
It's a true retailer relationship. They do not take equity. Where, where do companies like L'Oreal or LVMH make the most money? Like, where is the most money in beauty made? It depends on the country. Are you talking about sectors? Because if you're talking about sectors in U.S., makeup is still the largest sector, even though each sector goes through cycles. So, for example, makeup has really hit its peak and is cycling down right now, where skincare is cycling up and maybe reaching its peak maybe in the next year or two. Hair care is also cycling up, and so is fragrance. So makeup is on the decline right now, and the, uh, several of the other categories are cycling up. But these are cycles. These are normal cycles. These are not abnormal cycles. It's, you know, it's very, it's, if anything, it's almost like common sense. So for example, we've had huge makeup years in the last, I don't know, five to eight years, massive amounts. At a certain point, a girl can only have so many palettes. And then what happens when you wear a ton of makeup is that your skin goes awry. So now skincare is hot. So (laughs) it's almost silly, right? We're running in these circles, but you can almost see it happening. And going back to our our beauty fund uh, idea, uh, what would what would our thesis be, or, or where would we be interested in investing, or, or people building companies, whether it's sector or geo, where we think in the next, you know, or now or in the next few years is is going to grow significantly? How would you respond to that? Well, I think there's a few different ways to look at it. Of course, you know, you can look at which sector is doing, you know, really well. Skincare is really doing really hot, and you can look at a cool skincare brand. I honestly think sometimes investors that I've met across, you know, across my path don't ask often enough whether or not the product works and whether it's not it's well liked. I remember I was speaking to an investor and they had invested in this one skincare company. The skincare company was very buzzy, had a bunch of famous investors on board, and he had given the skincare line to his, I believe she's 17, 17-year-old daughter. And I was like, he's like, do you like the skincare line? I was like, honestly, it's I, I admire what they're doing. Personally, I don't love it. What did your 17-year-old daughter say? And she said, she said she didn't like it. So if she didn't like it, I didn't like it. I was like, maybe he found some other people that likes it. But that to me, whether or not the packaging is pretty, whether or not it's, you know, famous investors getting on board, that to me is like a big no, no. (laughs) I think that because beauty at the end of the day is being used, you can't fake a good scent. You know, you have to have a good scent. You can sell the dream all you want. But at the end of the day, the scent still has to be good. You know, it all has to match all the way down the line. And even if for a short period of time, you have a very paltry product and you're selling the dream and you're doing really, really well, that's not going to last. So so I think that's really important. B, I think we're still in the founder era. I think founders are still really important. You have to look to see what sort of founder can lead you to that place, whether that founder can be a CEO, whether that founder should move to a creative position. And then C, you have to look at what kind of brand you want to invest in. So for example, fragrance is actually a very international business. If I was to start a makeup line tomorrow, I would definitely 100% focus on the US because the US is such a big time makeup market. But since I have fragrance, I have had to look at international markets much more quickly, much earlier than some other beauty brand because fragrance in the U.S. is category four or five. It's far down the wrong, whereas in Europe, it might be two. 
So, so I think you should also see, do you want to invest in a company that has these um, sort of different challenges? And if you can contribute or help that company overcome those challenges in that sector, not all beauty is the same. Interestingly, underlying all beauty is technology, is lab technology, materials, you know, delivery methods, packaging, etc. Do you think that assessing this space in terms of assets, technology assets, rapid change of formula, those those kind of qualities might be an interesting way to approach a hypothetical beauty fund? And where, you know, outside of does the product work, is there some sort of patented technologies that you can either look for as an investor? Sometimes there is. You know, beauty devices, for example, often have patents, and those things are truly proved out. You have to go through all the studies, etc. Most of the time, if we're just talking about a molecule or some sort of ingredient, most of the time the the company is sourcing those ingredients. So, for example, one ingredient that is currently on the rise is called Lumicol, which is a sort of microalgae that does brightening. I believe that comes from a lab that everybody can buy. So I personally (laughs) love technology. I will have to say, though, across my 11, maybe this is my 12th year of the New York Times, I've seen very little true actual difference. So (laughs) I will get so many press releases saying, this is the newest form of I don't know what, and it will change your life. And it is gentler and more sensitive and better for sensitive skin, whatever it is, you know, I promise you a hundred million things. And I'm sure I'm not doubting that their test is false. I just don't think the average person is going to see it different. So, so I think technology is a tricky part. I think once in a while you will come across some sort of crazy innovation. That's wow. This is really worth investing in. I don't necessarily think that's a good filter whether or not you should invest for the beauty fund. I just don't think there's enough there's enough crazy newness or technology development. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to, to that point, you know, there's you know, there's this uh, theme in Silicon Valley saying software eats the world, where you should try to you know take the same people who built Facebook, who built you know Uber, etc., and apply them to different industries, right? And it's worked tremendously well in say you know uh, finance or transportation. It hasn't worked super well in like healthcare education because of regulation. It has worked well in in music or Hollywood uh, or movies because of you improve the consumer experience, etc., with Spotify and, and Netflix. I guess I'm curious in beauty how much we think uh, that will apply if you take the same people who built Facebook, who built Uber, like world-class entrepreneurs, product builders, can they make it work? Or, or, or is it is this not the industry where, where those people have a unique advantage or there's a unique opportunity to improve the, you know, 10x the, the consumer experience in, in some sort of way? And if so, where? Ooh, you know, I think Glossy just hired somebody from Facebook that I was like, oh, that's a good hire. And I want to say it's a COO type position. I honestly think that because beauty is already so ahead of the game as far as integration of social and engagement and all that, I actually could definitely see somebody from Silicon Valley, I guess, whatever you want to call it, tech world coming in and really being able to help. I think from an Ellis Brooklyn perspective, I was like, what a dream that would be for someone to help me with like my back end stuff regarding, you know, how we should optimize from a social point of view and, you know, paid search, all that stuff, but also just how, how do you integrate? What's the next platform you could use? I, I absolutely think that would be helpful. If you're talking about bringing in people from music and uh, Hollywood and all that stuff, 
I think interestingly, because I, so for my New York Times columns, I cover beauty, but I also cover celebrities. So I also do interview celebrities and musicians and all that. I think those worlds are fantastic and great. I would argue that beauty is much further ahead as far as knowing how to use all the tech, tech tools out there. So if it were me as a brand founder, I would definitely hire somebody from the tech world. I don't think I would hire somebody from movie world. I don't need that. Right. And do you see any sort of new spaces emerging that don't even exist today um, or exist in a very small, small way? Well, I think the the one category everybody's waiting to see what will happen is CBD because the big players um, are starting to move in. And it's been a very sort of Etsy type of world so far. And I don't say that because I don't like Etsy. It's just that it's very crafty and and not that professional for some time. And now because of the new farm bill, it's really opened it up wide and you're going to have these bigger guys come in. I think everybody's still trying to figure out what they can do with this space. Do they want to, do they want to even offer a product that does this? How efficacious is it even? Um, so I think that's a space that everybody's watching this year. And then I think anything more along the lines of that, you know, there's two categories that I'm also fascinated with that don't aren't necessarily directly beauty, but are starting to cross over. One is dental care. I'm sure you guys have seen some of the changes in that. That's obviously a CPG product, but you see that some of the uh, the brands are starting to market more like beauty and less like dental care. So dental care historically has always been very fear driven, right? If you don't brush your teeth, you're going to get a cavity. Even, you know, the packaging has a picture of a tooth on it. Now you see these really interesting, clean designs. You see celebrities getting in the field. It's, it's becoming more beautyized, I guess you could call it. Um, so I'm curious about that world. And I'm also curious about more efficacious type stuff like the CBD world, this cross world between not not an actual drug, but like something that's OTC, but something that's also effective. I'm curious to see if that world will change too, although I haven't really seen anything yet. B, let me ask you, as far as Ellis Brooklyn is positioned as at the intersection of luxury and also clean beauty, and I'm not sure that um, our average listener would know what clean means in fragrance and, you know, the traditional history of fragrance and materials used in fragrance and what you're doing with Ellis. Could you speak to that? Sure. So clean beauty is such a loaded term today. <laughs> it's the fastest growing sector, micro sector, or seg- sub segment of the beauty world across all worlds. So that's across fragrance, that's across makeup, hair, everything. Clean, whatever clean brand you have, it's growing the fastest. So that's very, very exciting. However, I think there's a lot of disagreement over what clean means. So for us, originally when I started the line, I was pregnant. So I originally, not knowing that much about formulation, I knew how to review a product, but I didn't know necessarily how to put it together. So when I started talking to labs, when I started talking to my perfumer, I originally set out to do 100% natural. And I think for many brands, clean still means 100% natural. But for fragrance, because you're using these oils in such high concentrations, oftentimes they're very, very potent. Actually, for me, I, I discovered formulating that to have the cleanest, safest product, it's not necessarily 100% natural. So we are actually a, bl- a blend of naturals and safe synthetics. That's the route that I chose to take because for me, I'd rather have you know a product that's less allergenic, 
less reactive, still safe, even though there are synthetics in there, and then something that's 100% natural for the sake of saying that. I also think that many of these brands that are 100% natural, I think that we have to look at sustainability issues. We're a sustainable company. Actually, this year, we just went carbon neutral. So if you're looking at that, or actually last year, so late last year, late 2018, uh, we went carbon neutral. So if you look at that, then we have you have to really assess where your ingredients are coming from. And you're using all naturals all the time. Where are those things coming from? Because it's a tax on the environment. So, so that's how I assessed clean. We have our own no-no list. It's a bunch of ingredients that I went through just with our chemists and our labs. But that being said, I know many other brands that define clean differently. So that's where we sit. And when I started the line, that was always my goal is to offer something that anybody who was buying any other product, a luxury product would say, okay, if they picked it up, they might not know necessarily it's clean, right? You don't want it. You want it to be just as good as any other product, not just as good as other clean products. Um, so that's how I approached it. Can, can you share about the big players in fragrance specifically? Sure. So the big players in fragrance are Joe Malone, which is owned by Estee Lauder, Tom Ford, which is also owned by Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder went on a big luxury fragrance buying spree. So, so they also own uh, Labo, which is growing very quickly. It's influential. Labo is not as big as Joe Malone and Tom Ford, but uh, it's very influential in the sense that a lot of their scents and marketing and stuff like that, it, it, people emulate or people are into. Let's see. There's also, you know, in fragrance, you still have the big old world brands like the Chanel, Coco Mademoiselles, which is still number one across so many countries. You have Victor and Rolf. That uh, license is actually owned by L'Oreal. L'Oreal also has the Maison Martin Margiela fragrances. Cody has the Marc Jacobs fragrances, which are a real powerhouse as well. So you have a lot of these. Oh, Dior, obviously. Dior's license is owned by L- well, Dior is owned by LVMH totally now. Yeah, I, I would say I'm sure I'm missing some in there, but um, those are some major, major players. And are any of those players venturing into clean fragrance? <laughs> Not that I know of right now. You know, the thing about fragrance, one of the reasons why, you know, I love fragrance and that's why I went into it. But also one of the reasons why I feel like fragrance is the last to change and over to clean compared to the other beauty categories is because for many, many of these players, fragrance was their cash cow. Right. So Chanel's main business is not to make fragrance. It's to make fashion and a bunch of other stuff. But their fragrances are huge global blockbusters. And I think when something is going that well, it's very hard to say, let me stop and reformulate and see and see what's going on. You know, when we haven't had any kind of cause for complaints, I still think there's a huge customer out there who doesn't care, by the way, too, who is perfectly happy with with their fragrance that they're wearing. So, so there's that too. I'm not one of those, uh, I'm very into clean beauty personally, but I'm not one of those people that, that says or preaches that people, everybody has to do this. I just think there's many ways for many different people. We keep going back to this concept of global, like the fragrance market is global. Yeah. Um, What are the challenges for a, a fragrance company that isn't acquired by a global conglomerate, you know, with those, mechanics of different markets, entering different markets? What are the barriers to scaling? And what are the opportunities? You know, I read a really great interview with Byredo's Ben Gorham that talked about uh, 
why, what was one of the things he underestimated or made a mistake? And he said that he made a mistake in underestimating uh, how hard it is to get your brand image and message everything across in a brand new country. And I would agree with him. We just started expanding to some new countries and it is so hard. <laughs> you, you don't really know. You don't really know that market as well as, you know, your home market, for example. If you use a distributor, okay, that's great because you need the distribution access and they help you with shipping and logistics and all that. But then you're depending on someone who you're not working with as closely as in your home market. Everything is diluted a little bit more, right? Just because the fact that they're further away, it's a different culture. Sometimes things have to get translated. So, so all those things. That's what I was saying way earlier on was that all those things go into why some of these old school brands, old school companies are so powerful because they've found a way to make Chanel be Chanel across every single country. I mean, that is amazing. That That's something that younger brands have to contend with. I have a question about the future of fragrance in a way that it deals with data and analytics. I know that there's technology in the fra- that's increasingly being relied on in the fragrance developers, like there's five or six big fragrance developer, like molecule developers, and they're using a lot of computer applications. They're using data and analytics to break down formulas and build formulas according to success rates of existing formulas. (laughs) Is this something that you (laughs) take into account? And is this something you see being used more in the future? Fragrance has always bridged art and science. You know, you're dealing with molecules, but you're also dealing with composition. Also, it's very centralized. The access to the molecules is pretty centralized over five or six companies. Please you know, take over for me. So I, one of my favorite parts about fragrance, frankly, is the intersection of chemistry and artistry. I love chemistry. So for, for me, of course, you can break stuff down. You can take little nuggets. And I think there's a lot of learnings. I think for certain brands, especially like the mass appeal brands, I think this stuff must be so valuable, right? Like you need to appeal to a huge audience. You know, X fragrance really killed it on the market this year. Maybe you can take a couple notes and accord something from it, plot it out and make it your own. Um, you see this happen on a much more, I guess you could say quaint scale historically throughout time. I mean, how many times has light blue been locked, knocked off? The other day I was sent a rendition of a scent that I swear was just Coco Mademoiselle, you know, that happens all the time. Now I think people are just able to be a little bit more technical about it. I definitely think there's a lot of molecules coming out that, you know, uh, takes advantage of what we want to smell, right? If you look at ISO E Super, it actually came out, I believe, in the 70s. It's been around for a long time. But now with a huge success of it, I'm sure these these large fragrance houses that create molecules are looking at that and we'll see what else it can develop from that. So that kind of stuff will always exist. I think there's definitely those, those brands that are more artist-driven that will still not use this. So we don't use it. I know it's available. It's part of the marketing de- departments of the perfume houses, but it's a choice whether to use it or not. As you've thought about building your company, how have you thought about where your unfair advantage is in terms of where you double down on, where where you try to become defensible and and where you're focused? Because, you know, a startup can only be good at so, or can only be great at, you know, a couple things, if if even one. How have you thought about that? 
So there's a few ways to think about it. I think on the one hand, uh, there it's our sense. Our scents are absolutely beautiful. And I know that you hear this from a, a gazillion brands, but I really do think if you look at some of the great fragrance brands that came out in recent years, you really have to go back to the scent, right? So even if you, Lalabo, yes, it's great marketing, but you know, you, no one's going to wear a really bad scent. So uh, they have some beautiful scents from that brand. Byredo had some beautiful scents. So for me, number one has to be the scent where you double down, right? That is where you can't compromise. That is where don't release something that you're half-assed about. Two is we are very, I would think, very forward in terms of where we think of as packaging, think about waste. You know, there, there's been a lot of conversation recently about sustainability and packaging. Our outer box for our perfumes are very, very tight to the bottle. I remember when we launched, people were like, this is too small. This is not enough brand expression on the shelf because it takes so little space. But I felt it was really not part of our brand ethos to launch with a giant box. And so you see a lot of these companies launching with giant boxes so they can take up all the shelf space and stand out. But now you have this backlash regarding, you know, over packaging, too much plastic and all that stuff. So I think that we have to stick true to what our roots are. And those include our sustainability commitments. Because if you love naturals, if you're into clean beauty, then you also have to protect it, right? So that that is the way I think about it as far as where we can really make a point of difference. Um, and then going forward, I think it just depends on how you how you create that world, right? You have the product, where what's the world? And, and that world, we have the Brooklyn idea, the Brooklyn dream, all of that. You have to build around that because at the end of the end of the day, a brand creation is really creating a world. So so those are the three elements I really think about. Well, I think that's a perfect place to close. I also want to respect your your time. For those who, who found this conversation fascinating and want to learn more about UB and, and follow your uh, your work as well as Ellis, what what can you plug and what should where can people find you and what should people stay tuned for? So we're at ellisbrooklyn.com and we're also on Instagram at ellisbrooklyn.com and we're also at Sephora. So, so happy Sephora. We'll be there too. So anytime. And then in the New York Times. So my columns run on Thursdays. Awesome. B, you've, uh, you've put on a clinic on fragrance and, and beauty at large. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 